What is the theme of the book of Hebrews? Jesus is superior to dot, dot, dot. There'll be all kinds of things that finish that sentence. But the theme of the book is Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior. So we had in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 that we covered last week that Jesus is the superior revelation of God. You've got prophets, you've got Urim and Thummim, you've got dreams and visions, you've got pillar of uh, cloud and fire, you've got burning bush, you have all these revelations of God and Jesus is superior to all of them. And then uh, starting in verse 5 of chapter 1 until the end, it quotes the Old Testament to draw that comparison and contrast out that we talked about. Um, and it specifically uses the word angels. And one helpful thing to know for the whole book of Hebrews is the word angels has double meaning. Because the word angels does mean angel, like we think about the angels. Not humans, not God, but angels, another creature of being. Um, and the word angels is the same word as messenger. The word just means messenger in Greek. And so when he's using the word angels in chapter one, he's taking advantage of that double meaning that Jesus is better than all the other messengers of God, those who bring forth the message of God. And as we transition into chapter two, that he's actually greater than the angels themselves. Many times the word of God was mediated to the God of pe- the, to the people of God through angels. That is sometimes in the Old Testament, the messengers of God's word actually were messengers, capital M, angels, an angel of the Lord appeared and told me so-and-so, an angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord said this. So we're playing on this double meaning. And in chapter one, the side of the coin we're looking at is the messengers part. We said the message is the same because it comes from God. The messengers vary in their clarity and reliability. But even the angels, who you would think are the greatest messengers of all, are not as good as Jesus. Jesus is the superior revelation. And then here in chapter 2, we're going to use the exact same word, but we're going to shift to thinking about the angels themselves those greatest of messengers. And then we're skipping just for this week as a note, we're skipping the beginning of chapter two because everything he says in chapter one is Jesus is the superior revelation. And chapter two begins with him saying, therefore, don't fall away. Don't forget this message. It's one of the warnings of Hebrews. There's several of these warnings in the book of Hebrews. And so I'm going to group them all together. So we're going to skip that warning for now and come back to it. And that's why we're diving in right at verse five. So Jesus is superior. He's superior to the messengers. He's superior to the angels. Why? Because he is the author of salvation. He is the founder of salvation. He's the pioneer of salvation. We don't have a great single word in English to express all of the ideas uh, that are going to come forth about Jesus here. So we're going to use a lot of different ones. Verse five continues that idea of Jesus's superiority over the angels. So he says not now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So angels are important. Angels are valuable. They were useful messengers of God. He just covered that in chapter one. But as great as the angels are, the world to come was not subjected to them. It was suggested to someone else. 
in verse 14 of chapter one, we're told that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve the believers who will inherit salvation. And so now we're being told that that serve role is reality for the angels. As great as they are, as hard as it is for us to believe, these angels will ultimately serve in the kingdom of God, not be served. Remember when the Bible talks about people seeing angels? What does it say that our temptation is whenever we would see an angel? To fall down and worship it. You see these things and you think that is way better than a human. That thing is way more important and valuable to God than a human is. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us, despite that appearance, that's not actually how it is. Because it is not to angels that the world to come has been subjected. It is to someone else. Now, it says in verse 5, of about whom we are speaking, about which we are speaking, of which we are speaking, whichever way your translation has it there at the end of verse 5. And so that's interesting because we have to go back and figure out where in the previous verses were we even talking about the world which is to come. Because the sentence says, you know, we've been talking about the world which is to come, and you think back and you think, well, when were we talking about the world which was to come? I remember talking about... Uh, prophets and dreams and visions and signs and scriptures and angels. I don't remember talking about the world that is to come um, because he's um, so you have to go back and find references of time and you got to go all the way back to the latter half of verse three. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the, that's how far you have to go back to find the reference of the author here in two, five. And so what he's saying is what we've talked about before, and especially it works well that we're studying, um, the book of revelation together, because as we think about our timeline of history, um, and here we have our garden and remember we had our snake and then we have our cross And then I draw an arrow up for Jesus's ascension and I draw an arrow down for his second coming. And these are our big moments. So the question is, when he says we were talking about this age, which is to come, what age is he speaking of? You go all the way back to verse three. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so what he's saying is. This moment, this ascension where Jesus goes up and sits down at the right hand of the father, that is the moment where an age begins. So we could draw a separate little timeline there that starts at that particular moment. And what that is, is the age of salvation. It is the beginning of what ushers in the world to come. So I'll talk about this in Revelation in the sermon today, this idea that we live in this temporary period where the most important event for our salvation has happened. But we live in this time before the fullness of that salvation is here. And this is a concept you'll hear um, described as the already, not yet. When is salvation coming? Salvation's already here. (laughs) If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with your lips, you will be saved. The age of salvation is here. Is the age of salvation fully here? Not yet. (laughs) 
And so we live in this time of tension. We live in this age where the important event for our salvation to occur has taken place, and yet we don't live in the world that is to come. We don't live in the fullness of that salvation. We still live in a world where people reject God. And I mean, all we've been talking about in the book of Revelation, people persecute the church and they hate the church and they make difficulty for God's people. We still live in the age where Satan is not bound, where Satan is still wreaking havoc, where Satan is still corrupting men and women and encouraging them to do evil against God. We live in this not yet realized age. We still have fallen bodies. We still wake up in the middle of the night with viral infections. We still, sorry, Jake, you know, we still have the, the, the remnant of sin in our bodies. Not just that we do still sin, but that our bodies and this world still bear the effects of sin. We get old. We get sick. We get injured. We get infirmed. All these things happen. Will it be that way in the world to come? No. Because when salvation is fully realized, there are no more effects of the curse. And so you will add years to your life without adding deficiencies to your body or your mind. And we ain't there yet, right? We know we don't experience that yet. Um, So we can't say that the kingdom is fully realized. That's when he returns. But something really, really significant. In fact, everything that needed to happen for that kingdom to be secured has already taken place. And so we live in this already not yet. This small part of the timeline, small from the eyes of history, feels long to us. In between the kingdom's inauguration and the coronation of the king and the peace that we will have forever. So he's not finished. Um, He has completed the work. And sat down, is what chapter 1 said, but he has not yet ushered in the kingdom. So it's this strange, um, there's lots of different ways we can try to describe it. And it's like analogies where they'll all be deficient. In one sense, he's completely finished working. It is finished. But in another sense, um, the fruits of his labors are not yet realized. Right? We're still waiting on that last part. So when Christ returns in the second coming, And this is what's so hard for many people, depending on what we were uh, taught in the church growing up. But when Christ comes in his second coming, he is not ushering in a completely new age. He's not ushering in something that is fundamentally disconnected from the life that we know and understand now. In fact, there's only one tiny thing about that age that's different from this one. There is no more sin. And it just happens that that one tiny thing changes everything (laughs) that we experience. Uh, But it doesn't change anything about the nature of reality because Christ has already accomplished that. Um, yeah. What do you mean when you say he is complete now? He, there is not, so if you made a checklist of things that had to be accomplished in God's plan so that at the end you could check off salvation, he's done them all. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He died on a cross for sins he did not commit and he was raised for our justification. He ascended and Hebrews 1 says he sat down. And so salvation is accomplished. Salvation is in the process 
So this is where salvation is accomplished. We live in the age of salvation applied, where the salvation that is accomplished is now being applied to the people of God. And Jesus will not put an end to that until he has applied his salvation to every one of his own children. So this is a really, uh, with the sermon, it's going to put us in real tension in our thinking, but it's a real tension. Jesus will not lose one of his own, not one there. I mean, if you think that Satan or anyone else can snatch one of Jesus's children out of his hand, you have a view of Jesus that is too low. Jesus will not lose one of his own. And so that makes us think I got plenty of time, right? I have no sense of urgency because Jesus isn't going to lose any of his own. And yet the passage in revelation is going to tell us today, you don't got much time. (laughs) You need to have a sense of urgency of real urgency for praying for people to be converted and for sharing the gospel with people, because there's actually going to come a moment in the revelation text today where Jesus says, I fill the image is filling the temple with smoke so you can't see. And the 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 meaning of the symbol is uh, you can't make your way through to the altar to make petitions for others. You the time for praying for other people has stopped at that point. Jesus will receive no more prayers on behalf of others. And so it's this stark image of, whoa, there's a moment where Jesus is going to say, nope, I'm done. I'm done listening to peti-. And that all happens at the same time as his coming. So it's not, you know. but that says, have a sense of urgency. So both things are true. But, small, yeah. In the small timeline, like it's small right now, but it could go on and on and on. Like, right. I mean, if it starts roughly 33 AD, and we've made it to 2018. We don't know if we are on the longer side of it. There was more time before us than after us. Or if there's more time after us. If there's more than 2,000 years until he comes. We have no way of knowing. But the people who are living in the actual last day, like Jesus is coming back tomorrow, they won't know it either. <laughs> So it could be us. So again, it's back to that tension. Um, maybe tomorrow's, maybe I don't get to preach this afternoon's sermon. I mean, I think we all might be happy about that. Uh, <laughs> maybe I don't get to. Or maybe my children's children's children are faithful churchgoers. We're talking about angels and we're talking about Jesus. So we got Jesus on the one hand. And we got angels that we've talked about. And it's a natural question for us hearing this teaching in the book of Hebrews to wonder, well, where does mankind fit into like where we know we're okay. You're telling us Jesus is superior to the angels. And there's a couple comments so far that makes it sound like the angels serve in the world to come. Where is mankind? Where, where, where are we in all of this? So then you get verse six. Um, It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Now, just one little aside rabbit trail on that. How does he introduce scripture? It has been testified somewhere. Where's the somewhere? Psalms, scripture, right? And how does he introduce a verse from scripture, this author? 
It has been testified somewhere. That's an unusual way to introduce scripture in scripture. Normally you would say, David said to us, or it is written. You'd say something really emphatic. But here this author is saying, it has been testified somewhere. Why would he say that about words that David wrote? This is David who wrote what he's about to quote. Why would he introduce it with, it has been testified somewhere? What was the point of chapter one? Doesn't matter who the messenger is. All the message was from God. All the message. So it doesn't matter if it came from the Urim and Thummim. Doesn't matter if it came from a prophet. Doesn't matter if it came from King David himself. It's not the messenger that matters. It's the words. It's the fact that it is from God. It is the author of the message that matters. And so he's able to say of David, yeah, somebody said, you know, don't you hate it when somebody, you're the one who said it and you're in a group of people and say, you know, somebody told me one time, that was me. I said that. I like credit for the one good thing I ever said, right? But he says of David, yeah, somebody wrote, it said somewhere. He's got very little interest in the human author. And in fact, he uses the word testifying here. Scripture testifies to. That's the only place in all of the Bible that's said of scripture that, which is important for us because the Bible is uh, pen ultimately important. What does pen ultimate mean? Next to ultimate. Is the Bible ultimately important? Mm. God is ultimately important. The Bible is the perfect word of God. It's without error. It's inerrant. But we actually don't worship the Bible. We actually worship God. And so there is a difference between God's ultimate importance and Scripture's penultimate importance, and that's not to, to put Scripture down, but the author points this out in a very peculiar, well, not peculiar, but just an interesting way. Nobody else in Scripture does it, where he says, Scripture, you've got your Bible, testifies to the fact. And we don't think about Scripture testifying. We think about Scripture being the authority, but Technically, Scripture testifies to the authority. It speaks of the authority. It is not itself the authority. So it's this interesting thing that the author here is doing. Again, to place the emphasis on God. God is the speaker, and that's why his speech can be trusted. Um, so who's got Psalm 8? I do. Would you read that for me? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When you hear Psalm 8, and you ask the question, what is man? Is the answer, man is insignificant? Or is the answer, man is great? The answer is yes. The psalmist says both. Both are true. Which which uh, which side of this coin are you looking at? From which angle are you approaching the question? 
from the perspective of God, the Creator of all things. God, the one who is perfect in His holiness. God, the ultimate source of power and glory and dominion. From that perspective, what is man? Not much. Not much. But what did God make man? Well, God made man some pretty amazing things, and in fact, as we'll go on to read, God makes man co-heirs with Christ in this kingdom that is to come. He makes us the rulers over the perfection of His creation. He made us great. He made us something unheard of in the rest of creation. And so, which are we? Well, we're we're great. Because God is mindful of us. What is man that God would be mindful of us? We're nothing. But because God is mindful of us, because God made us these things, we are more than dust. And then he talks about, now remember, this is Psalm 8. So this is David talking and it's going to be on multiple levels. And we'll talk about both levels. Um, It says we are made, man is made a little lower than the angels. And that word lower is one that has two meanings. To be lower than someone or something. One component of that is degree. So you are not as valuable or as important, as significant as this other thing. And so you are lower than them or that. But the other is temporary. It's, it's, it's time. It's like a jack in the box that is pushed down, but there is a time when it will spring up. And so it is this, this temporary positional low note. Yeah. Jack in the boxes are creepy. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Springing clowns. It's, it's bad news at every level. It's just bad. It's surprise and it's clowns. Nobody wins. Um, but you see this, so one of them is a permanent degree and one of them is a temporary condition. So when God says I've made man lower than the angels, which is he speaking of which of these two? Well, it depends on which man he's speaking of. So David in Psalm eight, talking about himself, talking about mankind is speaking of this kind, the degree lower. The angels are, uh, they've got some skills we don't have. They have some abilities that we don't possess, right? And so you can look at the way God made angels and you can say, we were made lower than them in abilities. As creatures, we are, especially post-fall, we are bound by things uh, that they are not bound by and... They're not under our rule. Can you tell an angel what to do? Nope. (laughs) You are not the boss of the angels. They are not under your rule. So David, Psalm 8, says um, man is lower. But what else do we know about Psalm 8? And how is the author going to use it here? Is he going to use it to speak about mankind in general? No, he's going to use it to speak about one particular man. He's going to use it to speak about Jesus. 
So Hebrews 2.9, uh, when you're dealing with the audience going forward, but we see him, and then what's the language that's used? For a little while was made lower than the angels. So now we know when we're talking about Jesus, that's the him, we're dealing with the timeline. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. And he's not lower than them in stature or dominion. It's not like the angels possessed some sort of power or knowledge or might that Jesus himself did not have. But there was a short while, and it's the while of Jesus's birth. We'll draw the star. (laughs) Jesus's birth to Jesus's ascension where Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Why? Because he took on human flesh. And so for this period of time, Jesus does not rule in quite the same way that Jesus had ruled before or that Jesus will rule over his kingdom. Um, And then you see that once the work of salvation has begun... Then the angels become ministering spirits who help Jesus in this task. So once again, they serve Christ. Now they serve man. And Jesus is re-elevated where he is not lower than anything. But for a time, he is made lower. Everything, verse 8 tells us, everything is under his feet. Everything is in subjugation to him. And what makes that so like we don't we don't struggle with that, right? The idea that everything is under Jesus's feet. But remember that the author's playing with this double meaning of Psalm eight. He is talking about Jesus, but he's also talking about us. He's talking about mankind. And so, in this kingdom that is to come, once salvation is fully applied, everything is under mankind's feet. Everything is subject. To us, this is incredible for us to believe. What I erased it. I always point back to things I've already erased because visually I know where they are. What is man that God is mindful of him? Nothing. Man is nothing, and yet God is mindful of man. Therefore, in the age that is to come, what is under man's feet? Everything. It's unbelievable what God is doing for us in salvation. We think a lot about personal salvation. Jesus saves me from hell, and that's a good thing. And that's, I mean, especially as we read about it in Revelation in today's sermon, it's a very good thing that we are saved from hell. But we've got to stop being content with the notion or the reality that the best thing Jesus does for us is save us from hell. No, he saves us from hell for a purpose so that we rule with him. And everything in the creation is under our feet. Everything is subject to us. Psalm 8 is messianic. It is about Jesus. But it is not exclusively about Jesus. It's about Jesus and all those whom Jesus will usher into his salvation. Who's got 1 Corinthians 15, 27? But God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Who's got Ephesians one twenty two? And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church. So Paul makes this point really well. Psalm 8 is messianic. 
When it says all things are being put under man's feet, it is it is uh, fixated on Jesus. Jesus is the one whom God, uh, the Father, in His divine decrees said. All of this is yours. You are the one who rules all of this. And yet there's this other layer where Jesus says, you come with me. I forgot to give out Matthew 21, 15 and 16, but this is when Jesus hears the children praising him and saying Hosanna to the son of David when he comes into the temple in Jerusalem. This is the way Jesus talks about us being with him. It's these multiple layers. And how great must the salvation of Christ be that it elevates mankind who is nothing to this position with God. Um, his salvation is more than we give it credit for. It's more than we think about. It's, it's you know, again... We tend to think in terms of God saving us from a problem. And that is half the coin. And that's a very important half. I have a problem. I have a sin problem. I deserve the wrath of God. It is absolutely essential that I understand that God is saving me from a problem. But God loves me so much that he doesn't just save me from a problem. He makes me an inheritor of the kingdom. What does it mean that we're co-heirs with Christ? What does it mean that we will reign with him and that we will rule with him? Do you understand that in the new heavens and the new earth, after Jesus returns and he makes all things new, our lives will be in some very meaningful ways a lot like the world as we know it now. There will be relationships. There will be work. There will be hobbies. There will be all kinds of stuff to do. We will need to make produce from the earth, to build things with our hands, to produce art, to create stuff. There is lots and lots to do in the new heavens and the new earth. But what God says about life there is that everything actually obeys us. The garden grows and the bugs don't eat it. The, the plumbing doesn't clog, the, right? There are no thorns. There are no thistles. There is only life without the curse, life without the effects of sin. And that I don't think we think about that much. I think we think about, man, I can't wait to get out of this place. And then we try not to think too much about the other place because we're afraid that we end up in choir robes singing hymns that aren't really our favorites for all of eternity. Right? And what God says is, no, there is a kingdom to be ruled. There is a creation that I have made in its perfection, unmarred by sin, that Christ will have dominion over it perfectly. And you will reign with him. That's how we're supposed to think about the salvation. And so the author of the letter to the Hebrews is saying to his audience, you want to go back to what? You would, you would leave the salvation that Christ offers? You would leave behind the promises that Christ makes about the future to go back to what? There's no good answer at the end of that sentence. And so that's the same way we have to think about our salvation today. It's the, the great moment of uh, discouragement <laughs> that encourages in the Gospels where it says, you know, hey, 
the message, I, the teaching I give you is a hard one. So, you know, if you need to leave, just leave and say, yeah, Lord, it is a hard one. But where else would we go? You have the words of life. And that's the way for ourselves and especially for our children, not especially for ourselves. And as parents, we have to be very mindful of this for our children is we have to give them an impression of salvation that is as great as how Jesus describes it. So as they go through life, they ask themselves the question, where else would I go? Christianity is a pain in the neck sometimes. It doesn't make me the most profitable at work. It doesn't make me the most popular at school. It prevents me from doing some of the fun things I want to do. Sometimes Christianity is a pain in the neck. But where else would I go? 